Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. I want to begin our time by sharing something from church history. Uh, this comes from Merle. All of you know Merle, of course. Merle Daubigny, uh the church historian, writes about Luther. And here's a story he gives. He says, books were as yet rare. And it was a great privilege for Luther to profit by the treasures brought together in this vast collection. He's telling the story about Luther stepping into a library and being overwhelmed by the shelves and shelves of books. Luther, by the way, was about 20 years old, was a theology student, had been schooled in the realms of, of church dogmatics, church theology for years. He was on his way to being a pastor. He steps into the library at 20 years old. He opens many books in the library, one after another, to learn their writers' names. One volume that he comes to attracts his attention. He has never until this hour seen its like. He reads the title, The Bible. A rare book, unknown in those times. His interest is greatly excited. He is filled with astonishment at finding other matters than those fragments of the Gospels and epistles that the church has selected to be read to the people during public worship every Sunday throughout the year. To understand the setting, this is pre-Reformation, and the Catholic Church has given the people pieces of the Bible and has led them to believe it is the totality of the Bible. And they have scheduled readings where they read a little part on a Sunday. And um, the Catholic Church has left out most of the epistles in the New Testament. That is, the, most of the part of the New Testament that explains why Jesus died. See, the, the theology of the Catholic Church was built around the fact that Jesus died. And their whole system of merit was based on, and Jesus needs to die again every week to pay for the sins you just committed. As part of you working towards God and making your own righteousness. Um, they had taken the Bible away from the people. Luther walks into a library as a theology student heading toward pastoral ministry in the Catholic Church and discovers a Bible for the first time. Until this day, he had imagined that the little snippets that the church gave him was the whole word of God. And now he sees so many pages, so many chapters, so many books of which he had no idea. His heart beats as he holds the divinely inspired volume in his hand with eagerness and with indescribable emotion. He turns over these leaves from God. Look at what you have in your lap. Just take a glance at the treasure that, that you pick up and hold every day. How many copies of it? How many different English versions of it? Think about the 105 separate people groups in the mountains of Papua New Guinea who have never read one word from one verse, from one paragraph, from one chapter of this treasure. And think about Luther, who for most of his theological life never had access to this book. Uh, you have in your hands God's Word in your own language. Uh, God has condescended to speak in ways that humans can understand, to give us His mind and His plan. He's communicated. And then faithful men and women throughout history have labored to bring these words to us in our language. 
It's an immense treasure. Let's pray, and then we'll talk about how to dig into this treasure. God, thank you so much for your word. It is an inestimable privilege to be called your people, that you would be willing to be called our God, uh, that we could know you, that we could enjoy your presence, that we could enjoy direct fellowship with you through the death of your son, Jesus. And God, that you would communicate to us, give us your words, um, is another unbelievable privilege. God, I pray this morning that you would give us a a taste and an appetite, a renewed vigor to study what you have said, and not just for uh, intellectual advancement, uh, not just for uh, ivory tower theologizing, but for life, so that we may know you, so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you, so that others may know you. God, surely these are the reasons you have given us your very words. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to take a stab this morning at, a, at an overview, a, a basic view of how to study the Bible. That's why I'm here, right, Chris? Is that what we're talking about? Okay, we're on schedule. Um, <clears throat> and this is, a, this is a vast enterprise. Uh, there are a lot of ways to, to get at how to study the Bible. And I'll tell you, I am on a trajectory of learning how to study the Bible. Right? I, I'm not going to talk to you about how to study the Bible from someone who has arrived, but as someone who is on a, on a continual exploration of treasure. And I, I want to share with you a little bit about um, how to discover what's here. Um, I want you to be encouraged, not discouraged, by the fact that we could talk about Bible study methods for the rest of our lives and not exhaust the topic because we can never exhaust the subject matter. Okay, I hope that's encouraging to you. It has the potential for being discouraging. I thought I was going to sit here for 45 minutes and then figure out how to study the Bible for myself. Well, I want that. I want that for you. Um, but I hope you understand that you will never get bored. But the, the Bible as God's word reflects something about God's infinite character. Uh, you and I will never be bored getting to know God. And you and I will not in this lifetime get bored of getting to know him and his word. So I want to give you, um, I want to whet your appetite to study how to study the Bible for the rest of your lives. Um, I hope to give some of you who have been studying the Bible for a long time some new things to think about. Um, there's a risk in that of overwhelming some of you who just say, just tell me what to do in the morning before I wake the kids up. Okay. Um, so if you hear things that go over your head, don't worry, let them go. You don't have to grasp them. You can listen to the tape, get them later. It, it doesn't matter. We're going to be offering uh, Bible study methods, things through the equipping hour. So you can take a six-week class on Bible study basics, and then there will be another class on hermeneutics. I used a big word. Um, that's how to study the Bible. There will be another class about more things to do with that. So um, if, if I could do anything this morning, it would, my, my, my only hope would be that you would leave here hungry to study the Bible. Not discouraged, um, but hungry. And so hopefully there's just a, a, a carrot out in front of everybody to go, oh, that's something I can go get and re-energize my Bible study. Um, is that fair? By the way, 
interrupt anytime you like, ask any questions, shoot your hand up, stand up, or just say, hey, what about... Um, I don't intend this to be a monologue, so uh, feel free to, to interact as much as you'd like. I would like to do something um, as we start. A little bit of an exercise. Some of you have seen this before. Okay. Uh, that is the English word observations. Observations. Um, I would like for all of you to move into this quadrant right here. Some of you are back row Baptists and need to speed up a little bit. Uh, some of you are over in the right field and need to come in. Um, but take out a piece of paper. And what I want you to do is take the letters in the English word observations. And I want you to construct with those letters other English words. Okay? You don't have to use all the letters, but you can use only the letters in observations. Okay? I'll give you an example. Does everybody see the word ion in observations? Did anybody know that was a word? Yes, it is an English word. And it's there, okay? I'll give you two more words real quickly. In and on. Do you see how I got in with an I and an N and on for going? Do you understand the exercise? Try to make as many English words from the letters in the word observations as you can in five minutes. Go. Okay, we're recording again. Um, count your words. Count the words you got. Don't add any. Count your word. <laughs> if you wrote down observations, good job. If you didn't write that one down, you missed one. Okay. Um, how many of you, ra raise your hands, how many of you got stuck in the few minutes that I just gave you? Anybody hit a little speed bump? Okay. Okay. Uh, there was like a... I don't want to admit that, but I think just about everybody raised your hand. So take comfort. We all hit speed bumps. Um, how many of you got more than one word? Raise your hands. Okay. Uh, more than five. More than 10. More than 15. More than 20. More than 25. More than 30. 35. Okay. How many? 35. How many? 37. Anybody beat 37? Okay. Well done. Um, now... Uh, give me your most interesting word that you found. And we'll just start in the beginning with Christina. Servant. Servant. That's a good one. Chris. Serve. Serve. Yeah, we're going to go. We're going to snake all the way around. Everybody's going to answer. Aborts. Aborts. Anybody else see that? Okay. Servant. Safe. Save. Save. Good save. I was going to say, no, that doesn't count. <laughs> Boat. Boat. Sister. Sister. I'm checking that one. S-I-S-T-E-R. Sure is. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Melissa. You gotcha. Rest. Above. Above. Saint. Saint. Ooh, that's good. I like it. Boss. Boss. Satan. Wow. Okay. Vast. Vast. 
Oh, oh we're going in order. Opposed? Boast. Boast, B-O-A-S-T, yes. Stone. Stone. Boot. Boot. Vase. Vase, or vase, if you prefer. <laughs> Sobs. Sobs. Boat. Starve. Starve. Okay. Cassidy. Serbia. Serbia is a proper name. I did now. <laughs> Nations. Ration. Ob. Ob. Okay. It, that would be like a, an abbreviation. We won't count it, but it's a good. Yeah. Starf. Brass. Brass. I think we just got here. They have sun. S O N. S O N. Perfect, Dale. Did you find B E A T? Okay. Nobody found oboes? Unbelievable. Um, Okay, I want to make some observations about this exercise. Um, Did any of you see something that wasn't actually there? Who? Who saw something that wasn't actually in this? Oh, the point I'm trying to make is you all observed letters that actually were here. Nobody made anything out up. Nobody did what we would call eisegesis, importing letters into the word observations to come up with something that wasn't there. Okay, does that make sense? Um, you only sat and observed the letters that are actually there. And if you sat longer, you'd run into more speed bumps and you might say, oh, What if I just put an S on the end of most of these words? I could have oboes and abortions and votives, not votives, uh, ovations, etc. So um, you can go and go and go. Anybody want to take a guess? If you already know the answer, don't answer. But anybody that doesn't know the answer, want to take a guess at how many English words are actually possible from the word, from the letters in the word observations? A hundred, okay. A little higher. Okay, it's higher than a thousand. Okay, Michaela just upped the ante. Great. You know, that's like telling the punchline of the joke before you get there. But yeah, it's nearly 1,100 English words available from the letters and observations. Now, um, what would it take to get them? Sitting, soaking, making observations, right? The reason I use the word observations is observation is the key to Bible study. It is the key to Bible study. Observation, Because the goal in Bible study is just to see what is there. Sometimes we have this idea, well, I just want to know what it means. And we start asking, what does it mean? Long time before we're asking the appropriate questions, what does it say? What does it say? The key to getting the most out of your Bible reading in the morning, or detailed Bible study um, for growth, Or study unto teaching. Whatever level you want to study the Bible at, the key is going to be observing what does the text say. And if we don't move on from anything besides making observations, I think we will have some sort of a victory. You and I need to learn in our Bible study to sit and soak and observe. Be a detective. I'm going to ramble now for a little while and just give you some tools some detective tools to get at this question, what's there? What do I need to see? I want you to imagine for a moment you you received a letter from a sweetheart. And this letter 
is a page and a half long. Um, how would you read that letter? Would you seek to incorporate and interpret things from outside the letter into the letter? Would you want to read your own meanings into the letter? Or would you be trying as hard as you can to understand what did my sweetheart mean by what he said? I think if you received a precious letter from someone you loved who was giving a direct uh, um, communication to you, you would hang on every single word. You'd want to know how those words fit together. And you'd want to know what is the situation from which he was writing and he's writing into the situation I'm in. You'd want to do whatever you could to find out exactly what was meant by what was said. We need to understand that God's communication to us fits into the realm of communication. God didn't do something with his words that's different than every other kind of communication. He communicated in order to be understood, right? God wrote so that we would know him. To demonstrate that, it's worth a survey of the book of Deuteronomy sometime. God gives his commands to Israel under Mosaic law and says, I want you to hear my word so that you will keep it, so that you will do it, so that you will teach it. Move to the psalm, Psalm 119. In Psalm 19, God says, my word is for you, so that you may know me, so that you may obey it, so that you may instruct others. Move to the New Testament, same thing. Why has God given us his word? So that we can know him, so that we can understand what he wants for us to do, and so that we can teach others. Now, that is the fundamental purpose of God communicating with us. God wrote to be understood. God did not write so that the elite, the, the extra special people, the really educated folk, uh, can only understand. It, it, God did not write for the experts. God wrote for his people. Now, we're at something of a disadvantage in that we're removed by about 2,000 years and a language from what God said. And when we get deeper than the New Testament, when we get to the Old Testament, we're removed by 2,400 years, 2,600 years, 4,000 years from the original setting, from the original context, from the original languages. Um, so it does require some research. It does require some work. And the work we want to do is to get back to what did God mean by what he said? And what did the original author mean by what he said? What did Moses mean? What did Daniel mean? What did Jesus mean? What did Paul mean? A text in Scripture will never mean what it did not mean. A text in Scripture will never mean what it did not mean. We need to move away from the tendency to ask the question, what does this passage mean to me? Right? We, we need to learn to not care what does this passage mean to me. We need to learn to care what does this passage mean to God. Now, and I'm using a very strict ver uh, meaning of the word meaning. Right. If, if what we intend by, what does this passage mean to me? If what we intend by that is, well, I want to live my life according to it. So what should I be doing? What should I be believing? Uh, how should I change my worship? Etc. If we're asking, how does this text implicate me? How does this text address me? That's a different question. But that's not a meaning question. And we cannot start with the text's implications for my life. Because... 
you're probably going to be misdirected in your implications if you don't get meaning right. And I'll quote John MacArthur to say, if you do not have the meaning of a text, you do not have the text. If you do not have the meaning of Scripture, you do not have the Scriptures. Do you understand why that's true? This is not a book of incantations where you open it up and you say the magic words and poof, stuff happens. Uh, This is a book where God has communicated. And if we take God's words and do something with them where they no longer mean what he meant, then we no longer have God's words. Does that make sense? This is why Bible study is really important. Um, Life depends on it in a very real sense. So we want to be a a detective. Um, What are some of the tools that we can use to be a detective? I I want to start just by saying, read. Read. The best way to bridge the gap of 2,000 years or 4,000 years and language and culture and historical setting, the best way to bridge that gap is to read this book. Listen, um, no history book about the ancient Near East is more accurate than this one. No book, no resource about the origins of the universe is more accurate than this one. Why? The only eyewitness to those events was there. Um, The only infallible witness to human history is the one who wrote this. Now, this isn't exhaustive about origins or human history, but it is absolutely accurate in every single thing that it says. Um, So if you want to find out what the world was like in Paul's day, this is going to be your absolute best resource. And the best way to get at the flavor of what was going on back then. What did they wear? What did they eat? How did they feel? What kinds of things were going on in the political situation and the history? Just keep reading. Just keep reading. And you're not going to get all the answers at one time. Um, So keep reading your Bible. I am content with reading past something I don't understand. Not everybody is content with that. Some people have convictions that say, stop. You must understand it before you keep going. I don't. I believe in a big picture, 60,000 feet reading of my Bible. And I believe in... The details. I, I don't want to lose the forest for the trees, but the forest is made up of trees, and I want to know what the veins on the wing of a bark beetle on one branch of one tree in one glade in the middle of the forest are all about. Because <laughs> the forest is made up of details like that. So I want everything. I want the big picture, and I want down to the detail, nitty-gritty, as detailed as I can get. And I'll spend the rest of my life chasing that. Um, you don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that you must know something exhaustively in order to know it truly. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you an illustration of that in just a little bit. But um, the, the first tool in your belt of being a detective is just read. Read big and read small. Um, if you've never sat down and, and tried to just sort of skim over a large portion of Scripture all in one setting, that's a fun exercise. Read the book of Romans in 15 minutes. And I don't mean like read every single word, but turn the pages. You know, there's 16 chapters. Just time yourself every 60 seconds, turn a page and just kind of float your eyes over the over the pages. Just do that a few times Um, and then get down and look at one verse for an hour or whatever. Um, Read big and read small. But the key to understanding your Bible is keep reading. Because the first time you read a passage, 
is an introduction into a very foreign world in a foreign context. And it will get better as you become more familiar. So you'll understand Romans better after you've read your Old Testament a few more times. Um, Take the book of Revelation, for instance. There are more quotes from other parts of your Bible in the book of Revelation than any other book. But God said in the beginning of Revelation, blessed is the one who reads and heeds the words of this book. In fact, the title of the book of Revelation and the first word of the book of Revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis or apocalypse. Um, It means to reveal. To reveal. That's why in English we call it the book of Revelation. It's not a book of concealment. God doesn't want you to know what's in there. It's shrouded in mystery and darkness. No, it's a book of a book of revealing. He wanted you to know things. And he said, you're blessed if you read it, understand it, and heed it. Um, so there are promises from God to, for blessing, for life, for growth, if we just keep reading. Just keep reading. Just keep reading. Just keep reading. Um, again, we will not exhaust the nature of God. We will not exhaust what he's revealed in this book in our lifetimes. Don't let that discourage you. Let that be a reminder of what heaven is like. You'll never get bored studying God. (laughs) Um, There is always more to discover. Um, Here's another tool. Besides just reading big and reading small, um, context. Context. You've heard the importance of context in Bible study, no doubt. Um, Somebody uh, read for me Philippians 2, 3a. I need another volunteer to read for me Philippians 4, 6a, another volunteer to get John 8, 30, and someone else to get Jeremiah 29, 11. So first come, first serve, Philippians 2, 3a. Who's got it? Go ahead, Melissa. Stop. I said a. Okay. <laughs> Paul says in Philippians 2, 3a, do nothing. Okay. It's a command from Scripture. Open your Bible. What does it say? Do nothing. How important is context? Okay, you can finish the sentence, Melissa. Uh, do nothing from selfish ambition. Okay, do nothing from selfish ambition. That little prepositional phrase on the end of that is really important. Context is important. Um, how about Philippians 4, 6a? Be anxious. Command from Scripture. Okay, you can finish it. Yeah, be anxious for nothing. Okay, context is important. What do we mean by context? Con is the the word for with. It just means what is with the text. Whatever's around it. Um, And and we have circles of context. Um, We want to know, if we're looking at an individual verse or phrase or word, um, we want to know what's immediately surrounding it. What is the rest of the sentence? What is the rest of the verse, the rest of the paragraph, the rest of the section in a book? We want to know what is the whole book about. Um, We might want to know what else has the Apostle Paul written. We might look at the rest of the body of Paul's literature. And then we might zoom out to what does the New Testament say. And then we'll zoom out to what does the whole Bible say. And we sort of work outward in concentric circles of context. What are, what are the words that go along with what this says? Okay, what about John 8.30? Who's got that? Oh, yeah, no, 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 yeah, not A. You can read the whole verse. Thank you. That was very touche. That was good. As you these things, many came. 
Okay, as Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Well, this is awesome. What great evangelism Jesus is doing. People are believing in him. Man, write their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Successful ministry, right? What does the next verse say? So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Okay. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly my disciples. And he goes on to confront the religious leaders and say, you're slaves of sin, you're dead in your transgressions, and your father is Satan. And these same people who believed in him turned around to throw rocks at him to kill him. In the same chapter. So the context is going to help us understand what does John mean by believe? Because it sure doesn't sound like they got saved. If we read it out of its context, we might think, oh yeah, this is salvific belief. Now, okay, we have a clue in John 8 that maybe when John uses the word believe, he doesn't mean it the way I might think of it related to salvation. There might be an assent to some facts or an emotional, uh, emotional attachment to a teacher, but maybe not regeneration, maybe not saving faith. And so let's just survey all the times John uses believe in the gospel of John. And you'll find very quickly, he does not mean salvation. Sometimes he does, but a lot of times he doesn't. Because there is a kind of belief that will not get you into heaven. You know, John 6 is another example. Uh, they believed in Jesus for the free lunch, and they tried to make him king. Right? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You have to want me. And if you don't feast on me, you have no part of me. And they walked away. And Jesus turned around to his disciples and said, are you going away too? And his disciples said, you have the words of life. No matter how hard this gets, we have nowhere else to go. So, again, you let your context help you understand the meaning of a text. Jeremiah uh, 29, 11, somebody have that open? For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, Okay, um, I, I'm taking a risk here of stepping on the toes of all those who have cross-stitched Jeremiah 29:11 and placed it on their living room walls. Um, uh, anybody know the, the context Jeremiah is writing to? Yeah, he's writing to Israel, in, and specifically the, the southern kingdom Judah in Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah is referencing the, the promise that God made that after 70 years of Babylonian captivity, God himself will bring them back into the land. And Jeremiah says from the Lord, I know the plans I have for you, Judah, in Babylonian captivity. So don't fear. I've got you there. I'm keeping you there until the time is up. And God is doing a lot of things in that process. He's letting the land rest. He's forcing the obedience the Israelites didn't do. Um, he's fulfilling his promises to, against Assyria through the hand of Babylon. He's going to fulfill his promises against Babylon and through Babylon. And God promised that he would use Babylon to pay for the new exodus for the people to come back into the land. God is up to a lot of things there. But notice that God says, I, I, I have these plans for you. You can't take the you and make that mean little old me. Does that make sense? 
God had something very specific in mind, and I know the plans I have for you. Uh, One of the tools you need to put in your detective belt has to do with pronouns. Pronouns. Fill in pronouns with their reference. Okay, that's a grammatical term. Uh, Fill in the pronouns with who they stand for. If I give you a sentence that says, uh, I'm teaching in Wellspring this morning, replace it. Smedley is teaching in Wellspring this morning. Does that make sense? That's a great little tool you can use every single day. Oh, who's the you? Who's the we? Who's the who? What's the which? What's the what? Uh, Any of those kinds of pronouns, and if some of those went past you, don't worry about it. Just he, she, it. Who's the he? Who's the she? What's the it? Um, And try to determine from the context what the he, she, it is. Does that make sense? Let me give you uh, another tool that you can use. Um, Yes. I just want to like just really quick encourage us that, uh, and I know this isn't your point um, with how to study the Bible, but like like what you want for us and what um, God wants for us is to see who He is in those chapters. It's not like. Oh, well, it's about Israel, so it has nothing to do with us. But we still, I don't know, I guess I just want to, like, throw out an encouragement. Like, when we get to those passages that aren't, and on, I mean, ultimately, all of these were written to a specific audience, right? And then it's not, it wasn't originally written to us. But specifically, like, in this case, I just think, you know, it's helpful to just make the note that, like, this teaches us about who God is. And God did know the plans he had for Israel and what kind of God First of all, has plans, can fill them, fulfill them, and has great plans for the people who were so. I don't know. Okay. So I just want to throw that out there. I know that's yep. the point of what you're saying, but I know that. Not yet, it's not. But it is. But it is a very important point. We we don't want to leave ourselves out of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, but we want to we want to wait to put ourselves there. Are they wet? I think a little maybe maybe a little water or something. like that. I don't want to lick the board, but I need it. <laughs> yeah, I think some water would be... Uh... Um, yes, Cassidy, I totally agree. If if we come to read God's Word and uh, neglect, what does this say about our God? Um, what is, how does this implicate us? Um, how does this address us in the, in the 21st century? Um, we will have failed in Bible study. Um, my suggestion is that we will misstep in how to do that if we run there too quickly. Uh, Okay, that's great. Um, I didn't warn Janet that I was going to do this, but um, Janet, can I have you volunteer for a second? Okay. And uh, would you be willing to write John 3.16 up on the board for us? Uh, yeah, in Greek would be great. ESV is fine. Thank you, Vanna. It's purple and black. I'm not sure which one is going to work better. Okay. Um, so, 
When yes, Dale. I just want to say um, the verse that comes to my mind, and I forget where it is. But we heard it in church when we were talking about. I'll tell you what it is because you'll know. But if you're two or three gathered together, mm-hmm. I always wondered, well, why is that? Why do three people have to be together yeah. before God, God hears you, or is it more powerful? Or, and then I realized it was taken out of context, and people always take that. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. If 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 what Jesus intended to say was prayer only counts and God is only present when there's two or three. Well, how do I know if these two or three are qualified? Um, how do I get them? And what about Psalm 139? The, the psalm writer wrote, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I, singular, go from your spirit? I mean, it runs counter to the theology of God's omnipresence, to the theology of prayer that's everywhere else in the Bible. I mean, it, so that's a good clue. If, I've, if I'm running with an interpretation or an application um, that goes against what the rest of the Bible teaches, something's got to give. Because, honestly, if there's a contradiction here, we close this and walk away. God's Word is true, and He cannot lie. Um, There are no real contradictions in Scripture. Um, Now, there are plenty of things we don't yet understand, um, but when I come to something like that, I need to ask some more questions. And the context is the key there. What is the context? Anybody, Anybody know? It's Matthew 18. It's the discipline process. And Jesus is giving assurance to a very difficult and hard process that he is present in that process. Okay. Um, so the, the next tool I want to talk about is just thinking about um, what we're looking for in our detective stance. In hermeneutics, we talk about literal grammatical historical, or LGH, um, and what we mean by that is we want to look at the words themselves. What do the words mean? You can write down the word words. And then relationships of words. And then historical setting. Okay, those, those are going to be our th- three primary detective areas to get at what does this text mean. What are the words? What do they mean? And there are so many layers of how, how to do that. But you will go really far if you just have an English dictionary and your Bible. How is this word used in my Bible, and how is it used in the English language? That will get you leaps and bounds ahead on Bible study. Um, Just a Bible and a dictionary. Um, Words. And and the next thing we're looking at is the relationships of words. Whatever grammatical tools you have in your belt, use them. If you know how to diagram sentences, that's great. If you want to learn, learn. If you hate the idea of diagramming sentences, that's fine. It's not really fine. I can't believe I'm saying that. But um, whatever tools you have in your belt to to understand the relationships of words, um, use those. If it's simple questions like, who's doing the action in this verse? Or what is the action in this verse? Or whom is the action being done to? Um, Just any kind of questions you can use to be a detective to determine how are these words related to each other. I'll give you an example. Our English word board can be used a number of different ways, right? Um, what does board mean? B-O-A-R-D. Two by four. Okay, a two by four, plank. What's another use? Chalkboard. A chalkboard, okay. Yeah, it's not the same thing as a two by four, is it? On board. On board. Okay, on board a ship. You can even use it as a verb. I'm going to board the ship. Dale, do you have another one? Yeah, a group of people, an elder board. Okay, a diving board, room and board, 
Okay. What does board in room and board mean? Food. Right? You go to a bed and breakfast, you get room and board. Room means you have a room. Board means they're going to prepare a table for you. Do you see the relationship between board and room and board and elder board? Is there a relationship? Yeah, historically in the English language, uh, a board of directors meets around a table, which is a plank, on which also is served food at the hotel, out of which we make a chalkboard, and from which we cut two-by-fours, and off of which we dive into a swimming pool. There there is a relationship between those things, but if I say, hey, I'm going to go turn a flip off the board, you're not going to assume the dinner table in a hotel, or a group of elders in a church, right? The context has limited the relationship of other words. Um, swimming pool would be a key word. The relationship of board to swimming pool is going to limit which definition of a word you use. So I might even contend that the relationships of words is more important than the definitions of words. Because, listen, you you can do a great Bible study and go, man, I know what justification means. I've been studying Romans 4. I did a word study on justification. It means God declares sinners righteous by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. Well, that works great until you get to James 2. And James says, so you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What in the world? James 2 argues with Romans 4. We close our Bibles and walk away. Or justified in James's context means to put forth someone forward as righteous, which Paul uses that word to put forth someone as righteous in the throne room of God, in the courtroom of God's jurisdiction. James is using that word justified to put forth someone as righteous in the courtroom of human opinion. And read James 2 in the context. Notice how many times James says, see, do you not see that a man is put forward as righteous by what he does? Hey, listen, you show me your faith and I'll show you my faith by what I do. What is James's point? Your being declared righteous before God in this courtroom um, needs to be evident before men by your works, which flow out of your justification. So word study by itself needs to be limited or corrected or helped by the context, by the relationships of the words that it's in. So again, the, the three kind of keys we're looking for in our detective work, the words, the relationships of words, and then the historical setting. Okay, the, the historical setting of Jeremiah 29, 11 is helpful, right? Um, we need to look at that. Okay, Janet has, uh, has put up John three sixteen. It's a very familiar verse. What I want to do, what, I, I forgot to look at my watch. What time are we supposed to end, Chris? Is it over? Okay, good. Okay, good. I heard 11.35. So, um, for God so loved... What? (laughs) 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 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, We understand this verse. Um, we understand this verse. You understand this verse. Not exhaustively, but truly. Right? We can look at this verse and say, God, God loves people. And that would be a true understanding of this verse. 
And we can look at this verse and go further and say, God loves people so that he, he, he gave his son so that those who believe in his son will have eternal life. That's a, that's a true understanding of this verse. I just kind of restated it. Um, it maybe goes a little farther than the first time we looked at it. Um, we might go a little farther and notice um, that this is a subordinating conjunction right here. And so this verse is somehow connected to Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Now, we haven't changed the fact that we understood this verse truly a minute ago. But we have gone down a road of understanding a little more about it. It's like a diamond with however many facets diamonds have. And you turn the corner, you go, oh, more sparkle. Wow. Wait, you didn't change the fact that you were looking at a diamond before and it was beautiful. Um, but you saw something you didn't see before. Um, we might um, discover that this word so um, is, is, in English, we, sometimes we use the word so to say like, so much. I just love him so. And we mean by that so much. Well, the Greek word there doesn't mean so much. It means in this manner. It means thusly. And the English word means thusly. But sometimes this gets confused, especially if you hear a sermon that says, God loved the world so, 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 so much that he gave his son. That's not what he's saying. John is saying, and Jesus is saying through John, um, God loved the world thusly, or God loved the world in this manner. And if anybody's curious, it's that word. Who talks? God loved the world in this manner. In what manner? That he gave his son. You see, we haven't disassembled what we knew about John 3.16 before. You knew it truly. But we're going to turn the diamond one more facet and see something we didn't see before. And, and in what manner did God love us? God love the world? Well, if, maybe if we look at this word world in John's usage in the Gospel of John, in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, in the book of Revelation, we might come to discover that world never once in John's language means every single person who ever lived, past, present, and future. In fact, it never means that in the Greek New Testament. It never means that in the entire Bible. And it's hard to demonstrate it that it even means that one time in Greek usage. And I, I'm almost ready to say, I can't imagine where we actually use the word world to mean every single human being who ever lived past, present, and future in English. I, I'm not done test driving that. I've been saying that for about four or five years with some hesitancy. I haven't yet come across a usage in speech or in a book where somebody meant every single human being past, present, and future by the word world. It means a lot of different things. 21 different meanings in your Bible, by the way. Sometimes it, it just means the, the cosmos, the universe. Sometimes it means the inhabited earth. Um, sometimes it means everybody that was taxed under the Roman Empire. But Caesar taxed the whole world. Well, Caesar didn't tax the Philippines. And he didn't tax you. Um, in fact, he didn't even tax Roman citizens. So in that case, world only meant every single taxable person under the Roman Empire that they could enforce that was not a Roman citizen. So at any rate, most times in the Gospel of John, most times in John's usage, world means the anti-God, Satan-driven system, the worldview, the, the, the political, geographical, human, sin-filled system driven by Satan that is opposed to God and his purposes. 
And I think it probably is something entangled in that definition that Jesus means here. The idea is not to say how magnanimous God's love is. It certainly is big. But his purpose is to say how shocking God's love is. See, Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. And, and the, the teacher class of males in Israel believed that God had special love for Jews, specialer love for Jewish males, and really specialer love for Jewish male Pharisees. And everybody else was kind of like, eh. And in fact, in, in Nicodemus's theology, at least we could say of the Pharisaical theology, their expectation of Messiah is that Messiah would come and vindicate the Pharisaic males and uphold their rulership over the people. So Nicodemus was not only a racist, a bigot, uh, uh, everything foe. Um, he needed to have his, his world expanded. God so loved the Jewish male Pharisee elite that he sent his son as the Messiah. No, Nicodemus. And here's the Messiah talking to him. God so loved the awful, anti-God system of people and God loved that system of people in this manner. He gave. What's wrapped up in this word gave? You know, Christmas gift wrapped up like a bow. Or the crushing of the sun on a cross. Excuse me. He, he meant when he, God gave the sun. He meant he gave him over to be crucified on behalf of sinners who will believe. And why did he do that? So that, uh, wait, that's that. That, here we go. Here's the next that. Um, in order that whoever okay um, whoever is not a word in the original text it's a, it, I'll, tell, I'll explain why in a moment it's a legitimate English translation um, but I, I've heard sermons that say whoever believes whoever I heard, I heard a sermon where the pastor spent the whole time talking about the word whoever Making a case for the fact that anyone can believe. Anyone can believe and you should. So whoever will believe can come. And he was pressing human ability to get a hold of spiritual things like new birth. Which if you think about what new birth is, you didn't conjure up your first birth. And you didn't conjure up your second birth either. That's the reason Jesus uses that illustration. Jesus is not making a point with Nicodemus that you can be born again if you just try hard enough. Um, the construction here literally is the believing ones. The believing ones. Now, in English, to say whoever believes is a very good translation of the believing ones. As long as we don't press the whoever to where it was never intended to go. Does that make sense? God, in this manner, loved an awful world full of sinners. That he gave his only son... In order that the believing ones will not perish. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. It's a, a definite reality for the believing ones. God gave his son so that the believing ones will not perish, but absolutely will possess eternal life. Chris? Okay, so, I mean, this, I'll just ask the question. So, why isn't it translated that way? Um, again, this is legitimate until it gets abused. If, if we translated it, to say the believing ones is, is not very good English. And this is why preaching is important. This is why teaching is important. 
Um, this is why study is important. Um, this is a legitimate translation. But, again, if people, especially if this is why, the, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, you'll incur a stricter judgment. Because if you don't have the tools in place to do this accurately, to cut straight the word of God, be an approved workman, etc., um, you'll lead people to wrong thoughts about God, wrong thoughts about salvation, wrong, etc. Um, it's a heavy enterprise to teach. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to do this to, to um, give you the discouragement that, man, I could never do that. Um, and I hope I haven't conveyed the wrong idea there. I want to give you the encouragement that um, while you have known this verse and known it truly, um, you have not yet known it exhaustively. I haven't known this verse exhaustively. I don't think I will in my lifetime exhaust what's in this very familiar verse. <laughs> and that's exciting. It just means I get to dig treasure my whole life. And that's fun. So I hope it's encouraging to you and not discouraging. Um, I'm, I apologize if it has been in any way discouraging. Um, but there's just more to see in God's work. So be a detective. Be a detective. Any, any questions about that or about John? This illustrates something that's important. There are layers of discovery. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples um, that, are, that are maybe some of the more um, advanced tools to put in your belt. If, if you're just kind of reeling right now, you can come up with more words from observations and ignore what I'm about to say. Or you can write this down and save it for later um, or whatever. Um, if you wanted some more tools for getting at some specific things, I'll just show you the kinds of things that you can grow in if you want to grow in your Bible study tools. Here's one. Um, the telescopic compacting of distant events in prophetic literature. Okay, what do I mean by that? Um, you ever look through a telephoto lens in a camera? And you can see, especially if you're taking a picture of two things that are far away. Like, from here... The Superstition Mountains, Superstition Mountains, that, that big square thing on the other side of Mesa, and then Four Peaks, the thing that has four peaks and you can see snow on it sometimes from here. Those, those two things look like they're right next to each other. But if, if you've driven up the Beeline Highway, um, you've seen, whoa, no, they're not next to each other. Here's Four Peaks, here's the Superstitions, and as I get closer, I can actually go between them, and there's a vast space in between. Well, the, a lot of times the Old Testament prophets have that kind of perspective. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 11, you read things about uh, an Edenic world in which Messiah reigns, where the wolf and the lamb will lie down together, and someone who dies at 100 will be considered, that'll be a sad story, if an infant dies at 100. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, sort of a, a remade creation, but death. Is this eternal state or is this millennial kingdom? What's going on here? Um, there are, there are uh, realities that are put next to each other. Isaiah goes on in that same passage talking about a new heavens and a new earth. Um, there are realities that are put together that look like they're the same event, like the superstition mountains and four peaks. That as you get closer, from Isaiah's perspective, they're like right here. As you get closer, you go, whoa, there's space between those. Okay, I want to give you just an example of that. So that we shouldn't be surprised when, if there are two yet future events, um, there may still be space between them. And Isaiah has already done that before. Um, look at Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, 
Isaiah 61.1, Isaiah prophesies this. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. Okay, that's a really interesting Trinitarian verse where the Spirit of God, God the Father, called their Elohim Yahweh, is upon me. And the me is Yahweh's servant. That is Jesus, who hasn't yet come in the flesh. Uh, but you have all three members of the Trinity. That's another message. That wasn't even what I was trying to point out. It's just a great verse. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Okay, so what do you have in Isaiah's prophecy here? Um, There's someone coming that's the servant of the Lord and he's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to bring good news to the afflicted. He's going to preach the gospel. Same words that are used there. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives and the favorable year of the Lord and bring God's vengeance. Okay, that's a very interesting prophecy. If you were living in Isaiah's day, you might say, wow, favorable year of the Lord and vengeance. How does that work? Um, Jesus opens the Isaiah scroll as he walks into the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, and he quotes this verse, and he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, I want you to see this. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Really an astonishing thing to quote if a dude walking around um, is not God. He says, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, period, end quote, verse 20, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And everybody was just staring at him. Where did Jesus put a period and end quotation marks? after the favorable year of the Lord, before the day of vengeance. Did you notice that? And Jesus says, today, this is fulfilled in your hand. Wait, where's the rest of it? What happens between preaching of the gospel, binding up the brokenhearted, favorable year, the appearance of the servant of Yahweh, and the day of vengeance? What happens between those two? At least 2,000 years of church history... Right? There's a huge space between four peaks and the superstition mountains here. In Isaiah's day, it was one verse and there was no punctuation. God's going to do this and this and this and this and this, period. Jesus says, today, God is doing this and this and this and this and this, period, cut in the middle of a verse, left off the rest. So what do we see in Isaiah? Here's a, here's a Bible study principle. Sometimes the prophets have a telescoping view or a telephoto lens on future events that are actually separated by time. In this case, separated by the first advent of Jesus and the second at his return. So we shouldn't be surprised to see that pattern in other places in the prophets. If you were looking for sort of an advanced tool, that's one. There are other places to see that as well. Um, let me give you another Um, sort of advanced Bible study tool if you want to look into it. Um, Hebrew parallelism in Hebrew poetry. Uh, You can just write that down. Know that in Hebrew poetry, words are not rhymed very often. Occasionally they are. But more often than not, ideas are rhymed. I'm going to randomly open the book of Proverbs. 
Okay, my Bible fell open to Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you hear the rhyming of ideas there? A gentle answer rhymes with a harsh word. Turns away rhymes with stirs up. Wrath rhymes with anger. Okay, you have the rhyming of ideas in parallel structure. That will help you in Hebrew poetry from making mistakes about meaning. Because your meaning is actually going to be confined to the structure of Hebrew parallelism and poetry. Okay, so tuck that away, use it someday. Um, I'll give you one more. Um, one tool you may put in your belt someday um, is the study of original languages. I'm not suggesting you should do that. Some of you are doing that. Um, but it's just kind of fun to be able to wrestle with the question. For instance, when Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. What, is, what does Paul mean? He, well, he means the love of Christ compels us. That's what it means. Um, does he mean our love for Christ compels us? Or does he mean Christ's love for us compels us? Both of those meanings are sustainable by the English word of, the love of Christ compels us. Is it Jesus' love for me or my love for Jesus? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not both. God meant one thing. And as a detective, we're trying to figure out which one did he mean. And the study of the original languages will give you one more tool to help sort out, huh, that's interesting. I never even thought to ask that question. Uh, another example would be Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, that is a genitive construction. Does it mean Jesus Christ is being revealed in this book? Or does it mean Jesus Christ is doing the revealing? Is this the revelation that belongs to Jesus Christ, the revelation that's coming from Jesus Christ, the revelation given by Jesus Christ to John? Or is this John's revealing of Jesus the Messiah in a new and unique way? And what you do with that construction makes all the difference in the world about how you interpret the book of Revelation. So anyway, there's all, you can keep going and keep going with all kinds of hermeneutical tools. If you want some, keep studying hermeneutics, keep studying Bible study. Um, if you have no interest in any of the things I just talked about, just keep reading your Bible. Just keep reading your Bible. What I want to kind of close with um, is, a, is a discussion uh, about, okay, what do I do when I sit down with my Bible on a Tuesday morning and I've got a, a lot of things to do? How do I get the most out of my Bible study? Can I just give you a kind of a, a, a four-step plan for studying your Bible in the morning? Step number one, pray. Pray. Pre-step number one is be a Christian, right? First um, Corinthians 2.14 says these things are spiritual and while they're true, they're readily available, they're right there, the natural man can't understand them. There's a blindness. So you've got to be saved. The Spirit of God who wrote this book has to dwell inside you for it to resonate. Okay? If you don't have the Spirit of God inside you, um, this book might be translating in beautiful stereo FM, but you only have an AM transmitter. In fact, your AM transmitter is broken and the batteries have been removed. You're on a desert island. The batteries are at the bottom of the ocean. The insides of the radio are all encrusted and you're on the moon and you, don't, you can't even push the buttons. Right? That, that stole a Rick Holland illustration for why the natural man can't understand the things of God. You've got to be on God's frequency. You can't be that without his spirit. Okay? So pre-step one is be a Christian. Step one, pray. God wrote this. God wrote this for you to understand. The goal in 
um, reading, studying, understanding God's word is to know God. Is to know God. Um, do not come to the word of God and miss the God of the word. Do not come to the word of God to win a theological argument. Don't come to the word of God to get a, a practical fix for some trouble in your life. Don't come to the word of God to do this, that, and the other thing. First, come to the word of God to meet with God. God has revealed himself here because he wants to be our God and he wants us to be his people. This is the great promise of the Bible, that God has made provision for us to know him. Jesus said in John seventeen three, what is eternal life? That they may know you and the one that you've sent. That's what this is all about. Um, so pray. Remind yourself why you're here and plead with God to help you meet with him as you open his word. And I don't care whether you're studying to um, uh, discipline your kids, if you're studying to, to teach a ladies' Bible study, or if you're just trying to get through the day and you've got four minutes. <laughs> pray. Step number two, read. Read. If you have time for one verse... If you have time to write a verse on a card and stick it on your rearview mirror in your car, um, whatever you have time to do, or if you have time to sit for an hour and soak in a long section, read. Just read. You, you want to know, God, what did you say? You just start there. God, what did you say? Um, step three, be a detective. Whatever time you have, whatever tools you have, ask questions. Who's talking? Who are they? Who are they talking to? Ask questions like: Is this is this a narrative section? Is this just telling me what happened, or is this giving commands? Right. Um, lots of mistakes are made confusing imperative sections with indicative sections. Okay. Let me give you an example. Um, Wild at Heart. I don't know how many of you read Wild at Heart? But the entire premise of the book was based on Genesis 2 because the man was created outside the garden, out of dirt. And God placed him in the garden. You know, the garden is the, the sweet-smelling, cultivated, civilized place where Eve was created. But outside the garden, in the dirt, that's where man was. He's wild. So if you're going to be a man, put on a loincloth, grab a spear, go kill something, be wild. Okay, um... What? Is that what that passage is teaching us? It's just telling us something that God did. That is not a go therefore and do likewise passage. So ask questions. Is this telling me something that happened? Or is this telling me something that God wants me to do? Um, I don't know uh, about you, um, but I have, I got into the, the Christian lingo of sort of trying to discover God's will by putting out fleeces. Anybody do that? Oh yeah, just put out a fleece. God... Um, I'm going to pray that, that if you want me to do, if you want me to go to this college, then you'll do this and this and this and this. Um, nobody wants to admit right now they put out fleeces. I'll admit it. I put out fleeces. Where do we get that? Um, from the book of Judges and Gideon putting out a fleece. Gideon was putting the Lord to the test. He was making demands of God he never should have made. And think about the book of Judges, which opens and closes with this statement. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, if you get anything from the book of Judges, the whole book is a don't do this, Jephthah, Gideon, Samson, whatever. Don't do those things, right? If you want to build a, a, a dating manual from the Bible, okay, where is there dating in the Bible? Jacob. Okay, we're going to write a book on dating. Well, you're going to marry the wrong sister, okay? <laughs> don't do that, 
those are not imperative sections. Those are indicative God was doing something. And, and if you think about big picture, again, I like to look at the whole forest from 60,000 feet. What is God doing through Old Testament history especially? Um, he's not the Messiah. Genesis 3.15 promise. Someone's going to come from the woman and crush the head of the snake. Yeah, it's not him. 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 You thought it was David? It's not David. And it's not his son Solomon. And it's not, and it's not, and it's not. We're waiting for Jesus. Don't build hero stories out of the Old Testament narratives. God is the main character. He's doing something. So you want to ask yourself questions like, well, am I in a narrative section? Or is God giving me directions? The book of Acts, by the way, is primarily a narrative section. The letters to the churches are going to be God's instructions about how to live the Christian life. So ask yourself, where am I in the flow of the Bible? Um, Is God asking me to do something here? So be a detective. Um, That's step three. Step four, be addressed. Be addressed. Be, Be a hearer. Be ready to be a doer. This is what Cassidy was getting at. Um, What is here in this text for me? That's different than what does this text mean to me? We want to know what it meant to God. But we do want to turn the corner and say, God, you wrote this to address your people. Now, obviously you didn't write Genesis 6 to tell me how to build a boat. Right? So I don't run to Genesis 6 and try to figure out, okay, where do I get gopher wood and pitch? And how do I get these animals to come follow me? You know, that's not the point. Um, but there is a point. Um, God hates sin. And he's merciful to save those who will trust him. And, and Noah obeyed him. And God called that righteousness. And there are things to learn there. But not, how do I build a boat? <laughs> right? Um, same when you're reading in Mosaic Law. The goal there is not, okay, how do I build a parapet around my roof and why should I not eat lobster? Oh, and polyester's off limits, right? um, No, it it was at a time for God's people. What do we learn from that? Um, Short answer to that, go go listen to Scott's series on Leviticus and how Mosaic law has implications for the New Testament believer who is not under Mosaic law. Okay, I'll just recommend Scott for you there on on Leviticus. Um, But be ready to be addressed. Here's my great God who hates sin. Is he any different in the New Testament? Same God, same message. Salvation by grace through faith to those who trust in him. But now we have clear revelation about Jesus Christ. Um, When you get to New Testament passages, especially imperatives, where you're in a section like Romans 12, turns the corner from, here's what God did for us in Jesus, here's what God did for us in Jesus. Now Romans 12, now go live this way. There's going to be a very direct application to your life in that, right? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, serve one another, etc. You get a whole list of commands in Romans 12 to 16 about what Christians ought to do in the local body of believers. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, be ready to be addressed. Be ready to be addressed. There are implications for you in the passage. And you can ask questions like, what did I learn about my God? By the way, sometimes we have an idolatry with application. Um, and, and I'll just tell you this, finding a relevant application is not the holy grail of Bible study. Finding a relevant application is not the holy grail. First and foremost application, meet with God. This is my God. Oh, that's what he's like. Worship. That's the primary application of Bible study. And then your worship will overflow into doing what God tells you to do when he tells you to do something. 
There is application. It will address us. We will be implicated by texts. But you start with, what is God saying? What does he mean by what he says? And now, God, I'm ready to be addressed. So pray, read, be a detective, be addressed. Um, I would encourage you to, if you have a a regular plan of of being in God's word, whether it's a few minutes or a few hours or whatever during the day, uh, where you're just reading, maybe take some time once a month, once a week, whatever you can fit in, schedule something where you do more detailed study. Where you, you take some of the tools that you have, maybe grab one new tool, start sharpening, and, and, and try to use them. And, and, and just feast. Uh, this is the treasure that God has given us for our good and for His glory. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word and for its rich treasure, which of course is none other than You. Uh, we pray that we might open Your Word to know You, uh, to be changed by You, to be used by You for Your glory and our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Okay. Uh, here's your homework assignment. And you can flip over to the back page of your notes there. Um, take your favorite Bible verse. Take the Bible verse that is your favorite and maybe the most familiar. And make observations. Be a detective. Exhaust whatever you know to exhaust with your favorite Bible verse. That's your homework assignment. Okay.